Hello, everybody. Welcome back. My name is Eric Wright. I'm the host of your Disco Posse podcast. Thank you for listening and for watching. Of course, if you want to check out the video version of this and other amazing episodes, you can head on over to youtube.com forward slash Disco Posse podcast and you can see them all as they happen, which is kind of fun. And thank you for all the people that are watching because we're actually getting really good uptake on that uh, side of the world. All right. This is Satyam Katamnani. He is a fantastic, fantastic guest. He's doing really interesting stuff with his team, UX Reactor. He's also the author of the soon-to-be-released UXD Playbook, which, if you follow the links, go to uxdplaybook.com. This is a must-get. So, so well put together. We have a fantastic conversation talking about his approach to user experience and real user experience. So we separate the myths of UI versus UX, the psychology that goes into creating user flow and, and experience in general. This can be done in software, in business, in physical spaces, it's, it's all over. So it's a real pleasure to take the, the learnings and the research that Satyam is, is doing and, and bring it to this audience. You are gonna enjoy this. I sure hope you do, because I, I came away with a real sort of feeling of being blessed after having gotten all these lessons. And of course, speaking of reasons why we can have this incredible user experience, I'm so proud to say thank you to the fine folks at Veeam Software who are supporting this podcast and helping me to make sure we can bring more great conversations like the one we are about to listen to with Satyam. If you want to learn about everything you need for your data protection needs, whether it's in the cloud, whether it's on-premises, whether it's physical servers, even those containerized crazy workloads. Yeah, that's right. Those containers, they go away and they're gone. So you got to be careful. You can actually back up because there are persistent container workloads. There's great reasons to back that stuff up. Hey, I could go on for hours about that, but I'm not going to because you're going to go to vee.am forward slash discoposse and you're going to check it out yourself because you need to do that much, much more than what I just talked about. Uh, go check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash discapacity. And thank you to the amazing people at Veeam Software. And if you want to toast somebody to your fantastic Veeam protection, then drop on over to diabolicalcoffee.com, grab a pound of the fantastic beans that are devilishly good and the Diabolically Awesome swag. All right, let's get to the podcast. So I'm Satyam. I'm the co-founder and uh, presently the managing partner at uh, UX Reactor. And today you're listening uh, to me at the Disco Posse podcast. Satyam, thank you and, and welcome to the, to the discussion. I, I really enjoy when we get to explore this, the topic and the practice of user experience. And as we chatted a bit in sort of our, our, our pre-discussion, you know, preparing for this, it really does, it's such a loaded phrase. There's over-marketing, over-use of, of the word. And I think this is a great chance for us to talk to you about UX Reactor, the real, you know, the basis behind your approach the book, which I've been thankfully uh, able to access a, a preview copy prior to publishing, which is fantastic. Uh, but for folks that are new to you, Satyam, if you don't mind, give a, a quick introduction and a, and a bio, and then we'll start to talk about the, the UX Reactor story. 
Absolutely, uh, Eric. Uh, one of the, I think it always is useful to see, I have a very, uh, I would say an eclectic background. I studied uh, electronics engineering uh, way back when, uh, realized very quickly that I didn't want to be a chip designer uh, and uh, needed more human uh, aspects of my you know, work. Uh, was serendipitously introduced to uh, a profession at that point called human factors, how humans interact with complex technologies. Uh, and that became my line of work for the last uh, you know, two decades. Uh, so that's kind of the highest level. Over time, I've studied engineering, I've studied design, I've studied business. So all three uh, aspects of uh, looking at how things come together. Uh, and fortunately, seven years back, I got to kind of spend uh, a lot of time by building a firm, uh, UX Reactor, uh, and looking at the intersection of all three of them. Uh, and uh, especially uh, as the world is getting more tech savvy and more tech pervasive, uh, and uh, businesses are uh, kind of driving a lot more tech, but with a design mindset. Obviously, you know, Steve Jobs uh, did an awesome uh, acceleration to a lot of these things uh, over the last two decades. So yeah, I'm kind of right at the cusp of uh, seeing this go through and being in the Silicon Valley also helps me to kind of be very much uh, plugged in with uh, the tech mecca uh, that's kind of it's become at this point. Yeah, the surroundings are certainly still, despite the fact that we've seen a, a sort of a, a depatriation of of the of the the real estates, you know, and and folks moving to other parts, sort of broadening the the locations that people can build from. There is still such a storied sense of history there, and and so much still active, right? It's 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 always amazing to me, and I think the best thing. If you don't mind, I'd love to just begin with, as if you were to type it into Google, define user experience. <laughs> uh, it's often the most misunderstood word uh, in the profession. Uh, if you really look at it, every uh, every system in the world has users for the system, and system users come in different contexts, uh, and every user has an experience. And the best definition uh, I I've found so far in my profession is any event or occurrence that leaves an impression is an experience. Uh, and therefore, you need to kind of look at every event and occurrence that your system actually has. But now if you look at systems like hotels, they have, they have studied this for a long while. Our hospitality, they've studied experience for a long while. And that's why you're paying a lot more for a Ritz-Carlton than you know, a, a much more smaller, uh, cheaper uh, option. Uh, but then in the tech world, where you're starting to look at one of the biggest uh, trends that's going on as tech is becoming more front and center, is it's obviously dehumanizing to in a lot of ways, but also humanizing to a lot of ways, right? So uh, dehumanizing systems that, you know, you would call customer service. Now you probably are talking to a conversational system, but again, it still has to work with a human on the other side. So that's why experiences are becoming much more uh uh, important, especially as those events are becoming tech events, as those movements are becoming tech tech movements, uh, and memories are being created with tech. Uh, so you really need to kind of define experience on that end, and that is what is called user experience in the context of te the tech world. Uh, but honestly, user experience and my uh, the first thing I tell anyone is user experience is a mindset. And then how do you bring that mindset to tech is where I believe is the biggest opportunity. And, and if you really think about what a Steve Jobs did, he did that. And that's why, you know, today Apple is still the world's most valuable company. 
Yeah, and it, it's funny if we we take that sort of Apple example, even within Apple, you know, you know, during and and beyond the sort of Steve Jobs era, we saw this the the introduction of skeuomorphic, you know, which was a, a word that no one even needed. They realized they needed to know what it meant. And then on the tail end of that, the the poo-pooing of skeuomorphic as so last year, right? Like we suddenly it was like, oh, the, the natural wood, you know, texture on stuff. Like it was, they've seen evolution, but the ethos behind the experience is always consistent. And I, I think that's what's interesting in looking at your own background as well. It's this, what's the, it's the vision the 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 ethos it's the you know the raison d'etre is the thing that you want to achieve the way in which you achieve it may alter by technologies by you know whether it's visualized whether it's audible uh, whatever it is but it's right. ultimately it's the practice that that you're you're creating i actually uh let me kind of dig deep on the word practice there uh, and and also kind of sometimes add profession to it because a lot of times people don't uh look at that as a skill uh, then more like a profession and unfortunately that's kind of where a lot of business leaders kind of make the mistake uh so i'll, I'll kind of let me unpack that a bit there yeah. when you look at the profession of user experience overall or the practice of user experience there are different levels of how you can create value uh the ui level which is like how does the screen look to me how does it feel to me that's kind of exactly words like skeuomorphic style hierarchy you know color you know, fonts, all those things kind of come to be in that craft. However, when you start looking at it as a next level, you start looking at how does the whole product experience look like? So when you think about Apple, they look at an ecosystem experience, right? So when you go from, and anything, again, when you look at this is nowadays, you know, Tesla has done this really well. They look at the whole ecosystem and they're looking at the whole product and as an ecosystem. And that's kind of the next level of how you're thinking about the user's experience. And then the third level, which is kind of the level which is much more organizational, where everybody and every element, right from like, you know, the lowest in the organization, the highest in the organization, the newest in the organization, the oldest, whichever way you look at it, they all think about the user first, the user's experience second, the design third, and then fourth, the technology. And that's kind of when you start thinking about every facet of what the business is. That's the last level and the most important uh, frontier of, you know, user experience. And again, every time you think about the user and how this will make them feel, that movement or that opportunity, that fundamentally is where value is created. I unfortunately see nine out of 10 organizations spending their time in the UI side and uh, and therefore uh, they, they only see value there and also make a lot of missteps there. Yeah, this is the the interesting, like the, the misnomer. When people say user experience, they inevitably think, you're a front end developer. You're like, yeah. no, no, this is human computer interaction is not about which bloody JavaScript framework you're writing your front end in or which Absolutely. fonts you're using. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> but Absolutely. you look up, it's been those, so the user experience as a phrase has been co-opted <laughs> by web designers, you know, building a single page app and they, to, I, and I, I have to be careful. So there is a truth that that in itself is a user experience, but that is so niche and so narrow above definition and the use of the phrase that 
the same person that will do a fantastic single page app that will draw you through a journey that makes you get to the bottom to use a strong CTA and like you do all of the right things. That is not the same as somebody who like a Tesla, like an Apple, like an IBM, like a Microsoft, like a power company, you know, yep. that wants Absolutely. you to do something like you and your client's experience, right? The user experience goes far beyond you getting to the bottom and clicking the button. Absolutely. And I think that is the obviously the right intent because eventually that's how they're interacting with the system. But it, it takes a lot of deep understanding of why is the user there? What are they trying to do? What are their motivations? What is the context? The same way as you would design for a kindergartner, an education platform is not the same way as you design it for a high schooler, right? And there's all those nuances that, and so much context is there. Uh, and that's where the, the beauty of user experience is when you can unravel it. And it, the interesting thing is, I like that you mentioned the idea of like education built towards a, a preschooler or, you know, elementary school, fundamentally different from, you know, somebody who's college age or beyond, or maybe perhaps even an octogenarian, right? right somebody absolutely. who's in there. And it is funny because I noticed like things that can seem wondrous to a 30 to 50 year old are instinctual and obvious to a child sometimes. And, and I always give this example of like the simplest thing is you just, you take a coin and you, you take the coin and, and all you do is you just, you make the coin disappear. To everybody else, they, they, they're like, they look at your hand, like, cause you can force them to do this, right? You can, and, but the first thing that a child does, right? I've got two young kids, is they look at the hand that you took the coin, like they know right away, they know where it is. Like you can't, push them towards an experience. You can't guide them because they instinctually have figured it out. But to the user of a system, it's the same thing. It's like you have to try and pull them towards something that they didn't instinctively necessarily believe they needed. I, I, I think there is a little bit of a, I have a different perspective there, right? So. Uh, my, there's an ethical element of user experience that you were trying to give people what they need. Uh, however, give it to them the way they want it in the context that they are. And that's right. that. the last two parts is where the, the tricky part is, right? Because I, again, you're, uh, I also, there's a lot of, in the profession, there's an element of uh, looking at trying, how do I get you to click on things? How do I get you to not do what I want to do? There's a lot of dark patterns there, but there's one aspect of that. Like, I, I'll give you an in the last two years, two years, more or less, right? So what you've seen is legal has now becoming, uh, become a tech tech system, right? You know, you have education has become a tech system. Uh, you have seen healthcare becoming a tech system, right? You know, you're now talking to telehealth way more openly than, you know, three years back. Uh, and these are all things that, again, giving it to like a kid who's going to go telehealth, a kid who's going to go into education, uh, all of these things are actually now becoming much more where the systems are created without the user in the loop. And it's actually one thing, Eric, I'll tell you, which is was fascinating as I became a student of this profession, that till date, 40% of the products that are shipped out there are shipped without talking to one user, right? So they've built out with that construct, like, you know, let me ship it and they will start using it. Uh, and that is a, just a fascinating thing of how many millions of dollars are spent on building feature sets and uh, building, uh, you know, products 
that actually don't work for the user. And that's why you see product market fit as a failure. I, I actually think that's the fastest way of throwing money at something and hoping it'll stick and it doesn't happen. Now, this brings up the, a good callback to a famous Steve Jobs saying, whether it's actual or, or misquoted, is the idea that users don't know what they need until you give it to them. And people hear that, and it's such an out-of-context phrase. It's because if you read the stories of product development and product management inside Apple, it was so wrapped into user interviews and continuous research Absolutely. with real users. But uh, what was the, I forget what it's called, the creative process, I think, or creative design. I, I can't recall, I should look it up. There's a great book that talks, it was like a early product manager who worked with jobs. And creative selection, I think that was the name of the book. And it's such a fantastic journey through that. But all people are going to get take out of that is, I'm going to create something because the user doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> See, I think it's because along with the Steve Jobs quote, another line, uh, another quote that comes was from Henry Ford, uh, and which also kind of muddies the water, which is like, if I just ask users what they want, they've just told me about a faster horse. And right. this was in the context of... Uh, building the Model T. Uh, in both of these contexts, I think a lot of people, when they read that or listen to it, they don't understand the underlying essence. You still have to understand that, you know, users, and let's say talk about the Henry Ford context, that users were still had to kind of take care of a horse. There was not a whole family that can sit on the same horse. There is, uh, you cannot go in a faster than a certain speed. There's a lot of those elements that also are informing how you're kind of designing in that context. And those are still user problems. The same way as when you look at Steve Jobs, you start looking at, he was very in tune with who the users are that he's building for, that he actually, what are the pain points for them? And what is he trying to kind of build from? Like he knew that people were carrying multiple devices, one for music, one for camera, one for personal organization. And then he said, I'm going to bring all of that together. And but however, they don't know how that will look like. The visioning is a different problem versus right. the need of the R. And I think a lot of times people confuse the visioning of going and talking to a user what they actually need versus what the needs of the R are. And I actually think there are two different facets and you should really be building a lot more deeper sense of the need of the R. And that only comes when you start observing users and are much more empathetic to the users of your system. Yeah, and this is... Yeah. You touched on it before too, and I talked about even in the way I described it, right? The idea of leading somebody towards something that you want yep. them to do versus observing them and, and and figuring out how to create a system in which it would naturally draw them to a path. Absolutely. And it, it's, and you use the word ethical and that we'll talk a, a bit at length about that. I don't want to get there just yet because I'd <laughs> said that's a single thread that I really want to, to spend some time on. Sure. But it is interesting that when you observe behavior with the goal of building systems towards the end goal with continuous observation and feeding back to that loop, the ability to have both the patience and the capability to go through that, it's got to be a unique perspective and a unique person that can do that. 
to to large extent yes i mean again if you care about it enough you will spend the time studying it learning about it uh you know immersing yourself in it right i mean you can talk about building all the software for you know healthcare i'll give you an interesting anecdote here uh, this was early in my career i was designing a, a system for uh, a breast biopsy uh you know uh system for uh, the doctors and as a designer a young designer sitting in in the office i was like yeah this is how the doctor would use it they would go and i was designing the thing where they actually would hit in the dials and the in the system so that they can get the right settings for the suction uh without going too much in the details of how that system worked but what, as i sat there i assumed that the doctors hitting those dials and therefore they this is how they will look at it but when you go and observe and you immerse yourself and you see a couple of them first of all is hyper intimidating very loud and more importantly the doctor is not doing it the doctor is focused on the biopsy itself he's you know giving the commands to the, the assistant who's actually doing it just observing how that subtlety works how the user and the ecosystem work then you realize ah i just designed it for the wrong person the doctor would never touch it uh, right. and it's an assistant who's touching it so the commands have to be much more clear and if i semantics are important now if a doctor says you know zoom in and then there's no zoom in button there then the assistant is so there's a lot of those nuances that you really think about and that just was my first one of my early lessons i learned uh, where you start observing that you really have to immerse yourself but if i was just sitting in the desk and doing it like most people would then obviously it's not going to work well and then the doctor is not going to use it or there's going to have more issues or more importantly it'll have it'll have some repercussion to the patient that we don't really don't want and i guess if you think that's actually a really good example too because ergonomics and you know like physical environments is the sort of the og of user experience right Absolutely. we've we're achieving this through software you know software design and software user interfaces but it used to be very physical and I remember even hearing a good example was like in sport performance, you know, somebody, uh, well, Lance Armstrong, love him or hate him, uh, you know, obviously a well-known cyclist, right? fantastic at time trialing. And so what they did is he had, the, they called them their F1 team. They were like fanatical designers, engineers that were building the best bicycle, the best, and they were doing everything they could to shave every possible second off of a time trial because it's 60 kilometer time trial mm -hmm. will be one by three seconds. And that's horrifying to imagine like how accurate you need to be and, and how differentiated you to, do you have to try to be to achieve those three seconds. And so what they did, they said in the wind tunnel, the perfect bike design for this was going to be sort of narrowing the pedal width by like, and it was millimeters. It was, it was an almost an insignificant difference, but over the course of a one hour time trial, it would take five seconds off of the time trial, which is the difference between winning and losing. And Absolutely. when they put him out on the road with it, he came back and he, and his time was worse. And they said, what, like what happened? And he's like, I, my hips are on fire because <laughs> while engineering wise, it was the, the ideal design, he just physically did not work like it it took away from the the way that he could physically ride it and it was when you see the marriage of humans and engineering you realize that it's two fantastically different practices that are coming together 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's the, in the design world, we call it prototyping with the users. Uh, you can prototype as much as you want in the lab, but taking it to the users, letting them interact with it, letting them engage with it, and then observing it and iterating on it, uh, absolutely. But again, these are all things that we've already figured out in the non-tech sector, right? So uh, prototyping has been a big part of architecture. They, they scale model everything before they actually build it. Has been a big thing, industrial design, where they actually prototype and, and kind of use it. But then in the software world, for as much as we look at it, as I said, I mean, 40% of the products are shipped without even talking to one user or showing it to one user. And that's kind of where I find that as iterative as software is, it still is not is behind the curve there. Yeah. And and often, too, once they, once they, even if they feel like they've been successful once, like they've gotten somebody to download and they see if the numbers are heading the right direction, if they're going <laughs> up into the right as far as adoption and retention, because there's no, it's sort of a Schrodinger's cat problem that, you know, would it have gone better if we had spent more time with the user? Well, well we're gaining an adoption. Our churn rate is, you know, low or reasonable. So how do you define successful? But meanwhile, you know, both pre-product and then post-product, that's the other thing is that user experience is continuous. It's not a, a thing Absolutely. you do once and say, okay, good. Stamp it, mark it complete. You know, it's now uh, it's now in QA and continuous engineering. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think uh, you, you use a good term there, continuous engineering. Uh, I actually uh, I'm very inspired personally over the Kaizen philosophy of continuous improvement. And one thing I always say is, you know, if your users have problems, that means you haven't done your if any problem in the system, you haven't done enough design or experience design till your users are in delight mode. Uh, and it's actually interesting because once you get in the delight mode where they're like, ah, someone thought about me or someone thought about my context, and that smile that comes in in their face, that's where you kind of are in that phase. Now, the irony with this is a year later, that's table stakes. Now you had to score in more delight. And, and that's why it continuously, because now like, just think about smartphones. Today, anyone who comes out with a smartphone without a touchscreen interface, are they even actually viable? Absolutely not, right? But That's then right. when Apple came out with the first touch, touch screen with their construct, very different. Anyone comes out with a smartphone without a conversational AI, not stable stakes, but that's where your delight has to continuously be evolving. And as tech becomes more and more powerful, you really have to you know, queue in and what is that pain point? What is that opportunity? And that's why continuously, that's your eat every day, you'd eat, sleep and drink that as a, as a you know, systems designer or a software systems designer. Uh, otherwise, you know, you will be left behind. When did you know that this was a passion and that you had the ability to, to create a world around it? I, I would say I, I've been in this profession for 20 years. Uh, I enjoyed this, but I never really knew why. Uh, and I think uh, the last 10 years is where I've started honing in and why. And the why is that, you know, when you really think about it, uh, this is one profession that actually uh, you can talk to users, understand the pain points, quickly come back, prototype items, and then go back to them, talk to them. And when you start realizing the power that has, uh, that you actually are as a profession, which is nothing less than when you really think about it as like an innovator, 
And that's when you realize that everything can be, you know, thought through in that angle. Any problem can be solved from this angle. And that's kind of when I truly started realizing the power as I started growing in rank and like one small change here can make such a telescopic effect. So I would say the last 10 years is when I started realizing more and more the power that this can unleash. Obviously, a pivotal moment was going to business school and starting to understand more business problems from other peers because I went to an exec program. Uh, but before that, I, I really enjoyed it, but never really understood why and what are the contours of that uh, you know, interest. But I would say the last 10 years has been more so being very aware of it. Now, this is an interesting point that you raised that I think is very important, is the connection of the business outcome to the user experience and only the measurability, because it is a very sort of touchy feely, you know, type of, of idea, you know, as we talk about sort of the practice of user experience that people believe it's like, oh, people will like it more. We use odd superlatives to describe it, <laughs> but there is measurability Absolutely. in it. When, so tell me where that differentiates a true user experience designer from you know, maybe somebody who's involved in user experience, but, you know, just more specific and niche is part of the process. Yeah, I think, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you can do a lot of user experience on a UI level, designing a screen, a form factor or, or the, itself, but or you can design a user experience as an organizational uh, aspect. Uh, now, a good designer is thinking about how do I, like, again, I'll give you an, an, an interesting uh, lesson I learned early on, which will probably uh, connect some of these dots. Uh, I was working in a company once, and I'm not kidding you, every team I worked with said we are user-centric. And it was a fascinating thing. We're like, I'm customer success. I talk to users. I'm user-centric. I'm customer support. I talk to users. I'm user-centric. I'm engineering. I'm building for users. I'm user-centric. I'm marketing. So everybody had a, the frame of mind. You go and ask the user, how is this company for you? And they're like, man, I talk to support. They will send me one place and they say, go talk to them. Product actually does one thing. And so that from a user's perspective, they were like, I hate what you guys are doing. Uh, and I don't like it. So when you look at it, it's interesting. The intent is right, but the outcome is kind of not coming together there. Uh, so when you start thinking about what a good designer, a bad experience designer, absolutely good designs are being done as a on the UI level, but really bad design is being done on an organizational level. So that's kind of where you're looking at. And obviously the impact of that, If the more higher you go, the more value that you can unlock. But in the most basic sense, I think they're coming back to something that you kind of started with. What, what, where's the business sense? The UI level is obviously very touchy-feely, like, you know, they feel right, they look right, they're delighted, all that stuff. But if you really look at all businesses, all business stakeholders, they care about adoption, retention, satisfaction, efficiency. And these are all user, user efficiency and user engagement. And right. to get to that level, you really need to understand what, why the user gets it, doesn't get it, what's their context, who the user is. And then you kind of build those experiments and iterate on it. And that's truly when you start, if, and you can increase adoption, you can increase retention. So many times you make tweaks in e-commerce or, or transactional experiences, and then you start seeing the impact, like just explaining something to someone gets them to sign up faster. Just getting them to kind of talk to a community and building a community experience gets them to engage better. So these are all things that you need to know what are the unmet needs. And then because of that engagement, there's a higher retention, there's higher you know, 
uh, adoption. There's all these nuances that come to it. Everything that you do. And that's also why UX Reactor was founded. Because I was just sick and tired personally where, you know, design was becoming very much uh, like a a touchy-feely thing. And I said, no, design is a business driver. And I met, and that was also the the pivotal point for me was finishing our business school with and and talking to about 100 other business leaders from different contexts. And I could see that they had real business problems that I could solve. And that's kind of was the genesis. And I, actually, I think anybody who says that does, uh, from a, as a practitioner, that design is touchy-feely, that means they don't really understand the power. And unfortunately, that is uh, still a, it is a profession that's in adolescence. So therefore, there's still a lot of that going on. Yeah, this is the, I, I remember, uh, so I worked in finance and insurance uh, and technology, uh, like in tech support early on in my, my the first part of my career. And it was I'm trying to think it was like 2003 so early 2000s uh you know and even like so pre 1999 so originally i started in 1996 i worked at sun life financial anybody can look at my linkedin so i'm not giving away secrets here but <laughs> so and i remember we were like moving from like mainframe terminals to pc so this mm-hmm. is like windows 3.1 the, the first change adding a mouse to somebody's life was like good golly like you I've never seen one of these things before. What is this? What do you do with it? You know, like it was literally that level of change in in business process. And then we had this one team that I remember that always stood out to me. And they were the ones they had colored hair and tattoos. And <laughs> they sat in the middle of the floor of the of our IT department for some reason, because we had all these printers and they were the design team. And they worked on the only Macintosh computers in the whole company. <laughs> and there were these sort of odd group of folks, you know, in that they were they were different than the traditional suit wearing insurance folks. So we were still in a very corporate environment. However, the leader of the team was this fellow named Paul. And I've always I learned so many lessons from him that he could beautifully nurture the creative process that these young, you know, in just such interesting people could bring and they were looking at like physical design and like brochures and and then it became email they became what they did was pervasive to the way the company was portrayed and then he was the sort of the like the dad of the group but who also understood that what are the marketing numbers what are the ways that we measure it and that that was my first understanding i'm like this was design experience versus just print you know they weren't a print shop they were truly connecting a physical tech you know like a textual experience a tactile experience rather to a business outcome and it was like oh wow but it i knew it was important and i as i saw over years we moved into software design and software user experience and seeing it done right in some organizations i was like you knew that Absolutely. they got it and, and they understood the, the impact. Absolutely. And I think uh, I'm a big believer of multidisciplinary thinking. Uh, and uh, when you connect the dots, uh, it actually is much more uh, effective. Uh, and, and so, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the only thing I, I when you said that, I, uh, that's one reaction I see is like, you know, all the, the creative kinds. Uh, and yes, absolutely. There are a lot of people that are, you know, uh, that 
are different and in the creative pursuit and so on and so forth but it's actually more of a mindset and it's a mindset that i personally uh, advocate that a lot of people can get into uh you know especially now that you know we all are equally that all the tools and systems and methods are available it's much easier to become an engineer if you want to watch youtube videos and learn it the same way much easier to learn design and appreciate design there's just so much opportunities to kind of become a student of uh, a lot of different uh systems and uh, but yeah i think uh design is is is, com- is kind of coming in like right? most organizations in the valley as well as most tech companies have some investment in design uh what kind and where they are and how mature is a different question but they have some investment and it's actually uh, i just to give you an, uh, one quick uh, story there is uh i started my career also in early 2000s uh and uh my title still was user experience at that point was user experience specialist and i had a scrum manager ask me like oh so what do you do and i said i'm a user experience specialist i said okay what do you code in and i said i don't <laughs> code in anything and and then he's like uh, oh uh so you just get paid to do boxes and arrows and i was like yeah i get paid to do boxes and arrows but that's exactly uh the fascinating you know start but then again it, it, again he he not at any uh ill intention but it was just how his understanding was like if you have how can you build user experience without this but uh but over time I, i still kept in touch with that pro, you know scrum ma- uh, master and it's been fascinating i mean how much the profession has evolved it was if you think of the you know those days i mean i remember coming through doing some work in like telecom in like schooling and like i went to university like took some part time courses and it was all about like information technology management and they were teaching us about like legacy telecom technologies that were like decades old and that was at the that time the beginning of what i started to see hci like human computer interaction was beginning to become a subset of computer science but only a handful of people moved towards it versus <laughs> today i i would imagine that it's actually probably core competency and and core curriculum i think for right. computer science you know so we've seen it be understood at the importance and the impact that it can have i think absolutely absolutely i think just look at it right i mean what was that saying that you know we have more computing power uh, on our body than you know the space shuttle uh, that went to moon uh, and uh, and that just is fascinating i mean the amount of tech that we have around us the amount of systems we are interacting with uh, and if you do not think about the human in the loop uh, and and build that around that then it just is uh, is an opportunity lost uh, and again with the curve there'll be a lot of people who will adopt it because it solves a problem uh, and just the same way as i would say before facetime and apple brought facetime in yeah you could talk to you know person to person if you know the ip and then you kind of plug it in and then you do a thing and maybe kind of figure out the firewalls and all that stuff but but today it's just like you know i picked i click on a person's you know face and i call them and then i'm talking to them and that just is the nature of how technology has evolved and they do they really care about what ip and which country and which location and they don't because the systems take care of it and the human just wants it to work that way and uh but again uh it it works with an iphone but when i go into my home it's kind of a different context so there's a lot of those still we are as technology is becoming pervasive i just believe that there'll be more opportunities for us to really think about human in the loop 
across systems. And I think what we're what we learn is that through those first iterations, right? Just like with teleconferencing, right? It was like you'd, you'd have a polycom system in one office and a polycom system in another right. office, and some poor bugger in the networking team is trying to set up SIP trunking and point-to-point <laughs> -point peering and all this really difficult technology to make one meeting happen. And there's you know, a bunch of people staring at the back of an IT guy in one room and staring at the back of an IT guy right. in another room. And then eventually the TVs light up and, and it's all right, you know, now we can begin and it's wondrous versus now the natural expectation is I should just be able to walk up and click the button and then right. I'm talking to Tokyo. Absolutely. And underneath it, all of that same technology exists. Right. But we took what was that problematic experience and we've gotten through it and we've automated and systematized it which is i think where the the advantage comes in and also like you said it's about iteration it's about listening finding the customer problem right and seeing where just in the same way that like any design business design like lean practices mm -hmm. and which ultimately came from you know, like the the work of of Toyota and Kaizen, and you, I, you know, I read Eli Goldratt and you know this idea of the theory of constraints and how this comes in as far as flow. Well, it, experience flow is similar, right? Like Absolutely. you know, find find the bottleneck, subjugate the bottleneck, eliminate it, and then you know, look for the next bottleneck and continue to do so Absolutely. until you have flow. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a more science than art overall. And as, that's why I say uh, I've, I've seen a lot more uh, correlation with uh, engineering, with creativity, which actually is one thing that I, I because if you look at a let's say, let's talk about creativity and movie making, right? If you look at a, if you talk to cinematographer and you kind of understand how they kind of compose a picture it's it's a lot of mathematics it's a lot of angles it's a lot of equations around light and you know uh camera angles and so on and so forth but no one talks about it that way you still have to equally be appreciative the same way as dancing as so much math steps counts you know and all those things that you have to really think about a lot of nuances and design is a very similar design is very similar in fact uh i write in the book too about this uh which is like a lot of time people pick about when you say design inspiration, uh, it's always they're looking for somebody who's a designer uh, in the craft sense. But I actually think that, you know, one of the best uh, designers in the world uh, who's often not discussed in the uh, modern uh, uh, context is uh, Da Vinci. Uh, and uh, because you think about him, he understands biology as well as he understands right. engineering as well as art. And he's his good things to show in each one of them and perfect. And if you again look back at again talking about Steve Jobs or anyone, the, the construct of being a polymath, construct of looking at how can things connect, uh, that's kind of where the magic is. And 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 then you kind of apply that aspect of like you know the flow and kind of looking at every aspect and every problem and then unlocking it. There's just so many ways that you can make that magic happen. And that is Da Vinci is such a, a just an incredible example of that, like as 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 both a creative mind and as an artist, you know, a very literal artist and what he could create, what he could paint and and his drawings, but his engineering. Yep. And no one when you look at 
the stuff that's not the most popular works that we all know, you realize like how many thousands of engineering drawings yep. that he has. And this was pre-computer. This is very, you know, rudimentary tools that were given to him to do this. And he was creating something fantastic. And, you know, the on the jobs thing too, it's funny. There's this weird thing that people often do is they say, oh, well, he wasn't actually, a, you know, uh, an engineer, you know, right. I, but he understood the engineering aspect. He understood the technology. He understood the business. He understood the human behavior. And that may have been his strongest focus area. But, you know, it wasn't he wasn't just a marketing guy that, you know, made Apple big because he was really a marketing guy like it's. It's unfortunate that we kind of try and dumb it down to just like labeling somebody as they do this. Thus, that's what they did. I think I think it's a it's a really good thing to unpack, right? So, uh, and we say this at the at, at the firm of UX Reactor a lot. We say this that always start with the user, understand the experience, then design it for them, and then look at the technology. And that that's that. that if you look at how Steve Jobs thought through it, he knew who the user was. He thought he knew what experience he wanted to give them. And that's kind of that whole thing. When he created the first Apple store, he perfected it in a warehouse. He looked at every angle, how lights was formed, what the material surface was. He thought about that experience he wanted to give when people walked into the store. Then he thought about the design of all the nuances. And then he goes to engineering and says, I want this, make it happen. Right and and obviously engineering is so you, when that when you have that level of a funnel of thinking, you you are always holding engineering accountable for a very different aspect, uh, and which is like I want to give the best experience for the user and uh, and this design is going to look this way. Uh, now, do you need to be the best engineer in the room? Probably not. Do you need to be the best uh, marketing person? He was a great storyteller. He he could bring it down to the world. And I think that right. is often something that's not told as much. Now, would you put it in the marketing hat? Absolutely not. He knew what users cared about, and he would tell that well. But the fact is, there was a lot of scientific approach and his process of, as you uh, kind of earlier shared this, that aspect is kind of very valid. Now, this, what's also interesting is Elon Musk calls himself the chief designer at SpaceX. Is right, a, and it's it's fascinating how we pick that title out. I know many people. Don't, there's a lot to read on that line. Is he the best? You know, space. Uh, you know, uh, tech, technically, is he the best? You know, person in space. No, there's so many other people. There's uh, technically, is he the best engineer on that system? Probably not. But he, the way he thinks about again, what's the vision for the system that he's building, and then percolate down, and then get everything done. Which is why the designer word, and I call it big deed thinking, big design thinking. Uh, and not the small craft thinking. And that's kind of where these people always played. Yeah, the, the Musk example is very interesting too because he, people you know, have trouble trying to fit him into what he does. He's incredibly technical. He's incredibly intelligent. Right. So much so that it, it's challenging to have discussions with him. Because he's thinking at a different level. I, I actually, one of them as a great interview experience I watched, and it was, it's actually tough to watch sometimes these ones. Lex Friedman, who's a MIT uh, robotics uh, uh, professor and, and designer and doing some very interesting stuff. And, and he has a great podcast, talks to some really amazing people. And Elon on, and, and he talked about how do you, 
how do you think about where it can go wrong? Like, what is it that you do in designing for, you know, failure that if maybe it, it won't work, that we aren't going to get to Mars? So something that was the premise of the question. And it was the most fantastic thing to watch as an interviewer because Musk just turned and you could see his eyes were like, they're darting back and forth. Like he's, <laughs> he's formulating it. And the fact that Friedman gave just said, don't say a word, like didn't cut him off, didn't try and fill it. It was like, I've probably, it felt like 30 seconds. It was probably 10, but that's an eternity when you're watching an interview. You're that's like, is the, is the microphone still on? Like you're literally like, you're not sure if they're <laughs> still on. And he's like, well, we, we don't, we don't think about that uh, because there, there is no option. You know, failure is, is, is not something that we design for, you know, we design for, and it, he began this, but the fact that he was, he went through and he was looking for the correct answer, not the fastest answer that would sound good on microphone. And, and that's a, it's a very unique thing. Now he's a polarizing figure, obviously. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah it's a, it's a, challenge to have a, a, a conversation about what's good or bad about Elon Musk some with a lot of folks, but, um, you know, and, as, and actually, so, so here's another one. I'm gonna, I, I bring this up because this is a, we, we did talk about oh, yes. this. Uh, BJ you, you may, you may know this text and this uh, professor. Yeah. Well, yes, yes, which is probably. why I said, I wanted to wait until we got into ethics. I'm a student myself of of stuff that that BJ Fogg has brought to the world, both before we understood the impact and now that we do understand the impact. And he himself has almost had to kind of sort of tell, put a a, a label warning on his own work because he's he sort of understands the how much he empowered people to take it and and do things that were were not healthy you know, or potentially Absolutely. not ethical with it. And so let's talk about ethics of design. <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting. Uh, on a side note, uh, I actually, my master's thesis uh, was either studying uh, persuasive technology, which is obviously at that point, or was human robotic interaction. I decided to take human robotic interaction. Uh, but I've actually, uh, I've been a student of uh, uh, how persuasion, how systems like that can be built right. Uh, if done right, obviously, I mean, because design, the way you cue it, uh, just, just the same way as you kind of showed the, the the coin trick, there's a lot of illusion to design. There's a lot of ways that we can get people to do what they want to do and how they want, want, want to get them to. Uh, if you're getting them to do it for the right things, obviously, it is all what the user intended to and where they got to. I think that's a that's all ethical. When you want them to get to things that you intend to, but not them, uh, and, and probably... Uh, and that's kind of where it gets into the other side. There's so much that's gone in, right? I mean, we have seen uh, the ad, as, ad, with the advent of technology, we have just seen a lot of other social aspects of it, a much deeper topic, much. But uh, personally for me, uh, I've always steered clear, uh, at least as a firm, we always said that we want to solve life problems, not lifestyle problems. Uh, and uh, there's still so much more opportunity, but... Uh, on a highest level, I mean, I'd rather get a student to study better uh, and a doctor to kind of be effective more or, or, you know, a financial transaction to happen faster than actually trying to get you to do something or buy something that I don't, that is not right for you. Or anyways, there's a lot of other aspects to that. But the power of design 
is very much there for us to do anything we want. I mean, you, you've seen that over the last four or five years where, you know, a, a, a triggering of the of a, a polarizing news can get uh, more engagement, uh, right. you know, getting you to click on uh, uh, a fake uh, cue can get you more uh, clicks. It just again, it's easy to do that because I, you know, I control the environment that you're in, and therefore I can, you know, manage that. But at the same time, I must say what some of the firms are now doing as a stand to kind of give more power to the consumer and power to them. I actually feel that there is more, more corporate responsibility that's coming in. Uh, but overall, I just think there is a larger system that people need to realize that you know technology is getting more powerful and the tools that are available are getting much more powerful, uh, and uh, and we just need to know that you know we have to be aware of it. Yeah, and I, I've always, I've applauded the work really of of Tristan Harris and the Center for Humane Technology and and sort of that that group that's wrapped around it. And there are so many people that have really come to the fore who were ultimately all students of Fog and 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 those practices, you know. And I think that's a good thing in the same way that you know if we look at what Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky did in winning a Nobel Prize for economics as as behavioral psychologists, mm-hmm. that in the same way you talk about design, that it's it's matching the business to the the human experience and measuring it, that we're going to use a lot more science to describe the art than the art. And that's pre-Kahneman Tversky all we thought was that this was art, that this was Absolutely. anecdotal information, and we were lucky more than right on describing what was happening. And when we took and we put science and data behind it, all of a sudden you could really understand what was going on in that behavior. And I truly like that's user experience is ultimately behavioral understanding, right? Absolutely. Because I think users have intent and intent kind of reflects in behavior. Users have trained behavior. So there's a lot of those elements that you have to kind of do that. So it's truly a cusp of, that's why I say, it, and it's a, you have to be a psychologist. You have to be a star student of, uh, you know, cultures as an anthropologist. You need to look at, be a technologist. You need to understand. So there's so many aspects that you bring together to make that magic happen. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is, uh, it's a powerful system uh, that many companies, and I, I see a lot more companies becoming much more aware of it. It's just that they don't get it uh, right uh, because they go in uh, it with like one quick solution and so on and so forth. But it is a it's a big mindset shift. But once it's done and people understand that there's a whole science behind it and a structure behind it, there's a lot of lot of opportunity. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting mix of, uh, like you said, it's such a multidisciplinary thing. And even like marketing campaigns are very much wrapped around creating an experience. And, Absolutely. And, you know, so the words we use, it's, you know, it's, they're so simple when you get them, but the work to get there and like, so that really, it can bring up the question of who was the reason why the the first Apple really went to high output? Was it Chiat Day because they were the marketing agency behind it? Was it the team that fed them the right data to give them that campaign? You know, there were so many players, but in the end, internally, especially as an organization, when you're creating a software-centric business, mm-hmm. user experience design is now fundamental and this is not 
something that you can go on to Upwork and Fiverr and find. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you can get a lot of people on Fiverr, uh, Upwork. Uh, as I said, I, I think before we started this conversation, that anybody with a computer and an internet can be a user experience designer. Uh, but to become a, 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 a really good one in that, it takes a lifetime. And, and you still learn. And this technology, they have, as I said, you have to kind of really broaden up and then also uh, build a depth. Uh, and it's more importantly, I think something that you called out, which I want to kind of further elaborate on, it's a very collaborative profession. Uh, and it's not necessary that the most creative person is uh, somebody with a designer title. Uh, it's actually the, the system of bringing people together, ideating, building it, iterating on it is a collective process. Uh, and, and it's one of those professions where literally two, uh, two plus two is not... Uh, uh, you know, it's not editive, it's multiplicative in, in a lot of ways. So uh, and therefore, uh, it, it's actually a fascinating thing. And the people I've, I've seen so many people who go through a design process, they're like, man, this is so fun. And I'm like, absolutely, it should be fun. Because, you know, you're getting your creative juices, you are trying out a lot of things, and, and you're doing it with a larger group of people. And, uh, and then when you build a structure around it, it, it is, uh, it kind of gets much, much more, uh, you know, uh, engaging. Let's talk about the bringing this to the market as a playbook now. So the user experience design is a practical playbook to fuel business growth. Fantastic introduction to what people can do. And it is a such a well laid out, full, true experience in the playbook. I, I was... Everywhere I went, it was it made sense. So I can imagine the work that went into creating this has had to have been a lot of a lot of hours, a lot of iteration, and a lot of design. But it's first of all, it's beautifully done, just visually, and and the reading of it. it it's it's like they say about user experience. When user experience is really great, no one notices. Absolutely. When it's not great, it's immediately obvious. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so talk about the book. Uh, what drew you to put the time towards this? And 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 uh, I'm going to tell people, get the bloody book. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, to be honest, I, I, I the book was never an intent uh, on our end. Uh, it, it all started with I really was about eight years back. I was fairly frustrated in my career because I had spent close to at that point about a decade. Uh, trying to build that user centricity in, in organizations and teams that I'd worked on and felt that my career was fairly mediocre. Uh, I, I didn't have much to show. I had a lot of effort, a lot of activity, and I was just concerned. At the same time, you look at the Apples, the Airbnbs, the Zappos, and, and all the folks that have actually been able to unravel and, and deliver much more impact to user-centric practices. Uh, and I said, you know, I really need to go back and look at it. And I said, you know, either I keep to this profession, in which case let's go back and understand and study why some companies are able to get there and why some companies are not able to get there. Uh, and that became my pursuit for a large level. And to do that, UX Reactor as a firm was created uh, and, and my, with my brother, who's also the co-founder uh, and also is a very good researcher in, in this line of work. Uh, and through that last seven years that the company existed, we ran a lot of experiments. We worked with a lot of companies. We kind of understood 
you know, what are the key things that make it work? And then we finally came down to what was in our, we call it the BVD system, to drive business value by design. There are four key aspects that need to be thought through, uh, which is the right people in the right process, following the right process with the right mindset in the right environment. Uh, and that is what makes a good company in this process of being user-centric versus not a good, uh, uh, versus a great company. Uh, and uh, what we then started realizing is that we would get questions that a lot of the, our stakeholders would ask, like, how do I build a team? What's the structure that goes into it? Uh, like, how do I build a career for them? How do I build a roadmap around a user that I care about? There's a lot of these things that started coming up and we're like, man, we need to probably write something about it because the, there's so much more need. Nine out of 10 companies don't follow any of this structure, though they intend to. Uh, and so we said, let's write it down and put it out in the public domain. And that's when the book came to be. Uh, and uh, it was also one of the pandemic uh, babies, as I said, idea. Because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, in the pandemic, we just saw every company going tech first, digital first, and then struggling, right? And, uh, you know, education is a classic example, like, you know, just throwing tech on it doesn't help. And uh, it, it because you what ends up on the user side is they have a half a dozen to a dozen systems to interact with one for assessment one for uh, you know uh, instruction one for textbooks and then like the, that student is have to, having to deal with uncomplicating it and then and experience is the best way to kind of navigate through that and you realize that's not happening so the book kind of ended up there uh, and then we said we wanted to create it with an intent to be a playbook where people uh, from and of different perspectives, business leaders, design leaders, practitioners, uh, collaborators, everybody could take away something from it as a play and then use it immediately. So we, that's how the whole construct came to be. And then we took a lot of our uh, tribal common knowledge that we had within our own playbook at the organization and then put that out there. So that's kind of how the book ended up becoming a book. Uh, and uh, so far, uh, you know, I, as we have, we've gone through our own process of iterating and testing with different users who we actually want to kind of uh, leverage the, uh, that we hope would leverage this book. And so far, we have only heard great things. And that's how we iterated on it and we kind of built on it. And uh, yeah, as soon as it publishes, we, uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward to kind of getting the reaction and, and getting out there. I believe it's in sometime early May. This is the the thing that we see often, right, is that going, you know, I think of Gene Kim and uh, the team that worked with him on on the, the Phoenix project and ultimately the, the DevOps handbook. And this, you know, we, the industry may still misuse the phrase DevOps, right? You still, I see people all the time, they're like DevOps engineer two, right? Like that's right. their title by HR. And it's not really related to what they're doing. In the same way that user experience design will get co-opted and misused as a phrase. Some some poor person out there is, is labeled user experience designer three, you know, like they're, they're going to get ranked, you know, <laughs> according to some HR band. But the work that went in, the research, the patience that's required to live the experience and then to take that same patience to bring it to the community through through a written work. I I loved how that played out in what you and 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 everybody at UX Reactor have done. And like I said, this is the proof in even what I've seen. When you told me like it's gonna, it's still in draft form, I figured it was going to come to be in basically word format. Like this, 
Satyam, okay. if this is draft, then I've never written a draft this good in my life. <laughs> it's very, very well done. Yeah, you know, again, good to great comes through iteration. And I think it's it's good yeah. right now. And I think we are still trying to make it great. But that's a perpetual. I said we will we will keep evolving it. We will still have ideas. But more importantly, I think it's a good resource uh, that we have pulled together from our own experience and and roughly everybody. It's, it's a collective effort. Uh, and I hope that, you know, even if one company gets to drive this, uh, it's success. Uh, and uh, that's kind of uh, the way we are looking at it. Uh, and that's the reason why we want to make sure that more and more people are aware. Uh, and we are, we are it, it's just one of those things. I say it's the professions and adolescents. And we wanted to mature fast and then start delivering value fast uh, in a way that uh, most users actually, and again, think about it, right? We have so many interfaces we're interacting with uh, and uh, and it, it should be much more easier. I think my, I have a vision in a decade from now, there will be so much technology, but there should be a simpler way of how we approach it. Uh, and uh, you don't have to go to, like, again, I, I see all these tech companies going through certification programs, uh, training programs. I'm like, professional services. I mean, your system, if it has to be explained, that means it's not been designed well. Uh, right. Your system needs to be certified on for someone to use on, as that means that you haven't spent the time, you know, perfecting it. Uh, and uh, and it's just one of those things that I say that, you know, these, and and then also the because the last two decades has been, much more uh, web centric, mobile centric, all that is what's what's going to come and play in the next decade. Uh, so it's actually a fascinating time altogether. It is. It is a really wondrous time with the opportunity. You know, obviously counterbalanced with what we talked about with sort of the ethics and and the, the risks that we do present. But I'd say the dominant work that's happening is so positive and so Absolutely. Absolutely. just doing great things. You know, what we can do to bring these technologies and these platforms and these opportunities to other parts of the world as well that are underrepresented. And this one I, I want to tap on before we finish up, Satyam, is cultural representation in user experience design. And because I I fall victim to this all the time, right? We I typically speak to a, a dominantly North American market. And so you can use a cadence of speech that's, you know, you know, specific. You can use everything, you know, platform design, referring to stories. You know, I can right. talk about a New York bank or a West Coast health company. It's almost ingrained into me. It's like it's all sort of a coded bias of speech pattern and experience design. But then when I speak to uh, audiences that are in the UK, I know to refer to Barclays instead of <laughs> you know Bank of New York Mellon. And I right. know to refer to Santander and to you know think about the NIH instead of Medicare. Like I've Absolutely. learned those things. When it comes to user experience design, how do you deal with geo experience locality? See, I think it's that inbuilt curiosity uh in a lot of ways and that's kind of what you tap into uh, it is a global profession so uh if i'm trying to build something for uh let's say sub-saharan africa uh you either have to go and observe and, and be immersed in it like one like them uh or you kind of go and talk to people there or you kind of find someone who's kind of much more aware of that so again it's a user research is such a critical uh facet that you know, how do you understand those aspects or you do all of it and triangulate 
And and that's kind of, it's no different from, again, good user research is no different from an awesome intelligent analyst and, and uh, you know, the military or a financial analyst in the, because you're connecting dots. You're kind of connecting, this is what this person thinks in this context, this is what it is. And then you kind of build your hypothesis and build your experiments around that. Uh, and that's the scientific part of design, building user experiences. But first of all, being aware that a sub-Saharan African student studying in, uh, is different from, uh, you know, the inner uh, uh, city uh, student versus like, you know, somebody is like, you know, has uh, in a high-end, in a high, you know, expensive neighborhood. Uh, right. Because even the subtleties of getting internet set up or even the devices that are around you, all those things can become different contexts and situations. Uh, but again, just being aware that the world is different around you and you are curious to see how they are different well, itself open up so much opportunity, uh, and uh, it just is, is. It's it's a, a lot of times people just go in and I, I assuming that what you think is the right thing, and I, I'll I'll end this with actually an interesting story and and uh, with my professor uh, uh, when I was in grad school and he finished a class and then uh, I went to him and I said that just seems like common sense, uh, and uh, and he said. Absolutely, it is common sense. But remember, what's common for you is not common for somebody who is uh, in the uh, other part of the world or, or your grandmother. And that is what who we are. We are understanding what common sense is. And that's actually a fascinating uh, you know, thing that stayed with me all through. And that's what I'm always looking for. What's common sense? And therefore, and when somebody thinks it's common sense, that means I've given to them what they want at, in the context that they want it. That's a perfect way to, to round it up and yeah, leave the assumptions at the door uh, because it is a beautiful and Satyam, your approach is, is, is really great. And I've learned a ton from you. I've definitely learned Likewise. just even what I've had a chance to, to read through the, the book. It's going to be great. So I'll make sure to get this out. Hopefully not too long, you know, uh, from the time that people are watching this and listening to it, they'll be able to get. So I'll have links and make sure to share it out. If people do want to get connected to you, Satyam, what's the best way to do that? LinkedIn is the best way uh, to connect on there. Uh, there's also, uh, uh, we're going to create a small community for the playbook. Uh, it's, I believe, uxdplaybook.com. Uh, it's going to launch around the same time when the book launches. So again, there's, there, there'll be different ways to connect. I really want to kind of be, uh, you know, a, as available and approachable as possible as people are in this journey. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I think LinkedIn is a good way. Uh, if, if they also can reach out through the company uh, uxreactor.com, so they, there's different ways to get there. So I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure uh, if someone wants to truly get to me, I, I'm sure they will find a way. Uh, but I, the easiest way is to get on LinkedIn and just send me a note. There you go, folks. So follow the links down below because I'll make sure I have them in the show notes and, and of course, on the YouTube channel. This has been really great. Satyam, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, I look forward to success for you and uh, with the book and, and with UX Reactor. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up again in future and, and hear on the other side, once it's out <laughs> in the world, how the, the community building around it. Because that is an interesting aspect that I'd, I'd actually like to explore uh, again in future. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, uh, have a great uh, rest of the day.